Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to the next episode in our full disclosure series, a show all about presentation and disclosure from the top of the financial statements down to the last footnote. While it may sound like Accounting 101, I guarantee you'll learn something new each episode. Today's focus, derivatives and hedging. So you've got to make sure that you've told the story about why you're using derivatives and what you're doing from a business purpose. There's always a disconnect between the deal makers and the accountants. And uh, that's certainly when things go off the rails, it's usually because of miscommunications. Those are my guests, Brett Dooley, a PwC National Office Partner, and Steve Holterman, a PwC National Office Director. Hedge accounting and derivatives can get very complex very quickly, but today we're going to keep it simple. So get ready as Brett and Steve tell you what you need to focus on when it comes to derivative and hedging, presentation and disclosure. And with that, let's get started. So Steve, Brett, welcome and thanks for joining me today to talk about presentation and disclosure for derivatives. However, and I almost laughed when I saw this question, we're going to start with an overview of the accounting for derivatives. And Brett, I can't wait to see how you can explain this in like five minutes or less. <laughs> so. so as you know, um, hedge accounting and, and derivatives can be a really complex topic, but we're going to try to keep it simple today. The accounting standards include a fairly complex definition of a derivative in the first place, and then complexities about identifying situations where you have a derivative that is embedded in a broader contract or investment that needs to be separated and accounted for separately. So we're going to start after all of that. Uh, we're going to assume that we already know we have a derivative and that we know whether it's freestanding or bifurcated, that it's going to be separately accounted for. Um, in addition, you know the complexities around hedge accounting, you know, to qualify and then to account for it. There's fair value hedges, cash flow hedges, and net investment hedges. We're going to save all that for another day as well. Uh, but we will touch on disclosures and, and give kind of a broad framework for those types of hedge arrangements. So when you take away all of those complexities, it becomes very simple. Uh, most derivatives are accounted for at fair value on the balance sheet and through earnings on the income statement. Although the hedge accounting model is going to complicate that a little bit on the income statement, and we'll go through a little bit of that uh, in a bit. All right. But I have to say I'm impressed. Uh, I'm curious how long it took you to come up with that very brief explanation. Uh, and actually, I think you're aware, you know, I have my stump the guest feature. So this is a perfect place to put it in. And I warned you, but I wasn't joking. Do you know how many pages are in the green book? And you're not allowed to look. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with the green book, this is like a compendium of all the dig issues as well as FAS 133 and all of its amendments. And I know Steve and Brett, I'm sure have at least one, if not more copies sitting around their offices, but just curious if they know the answer. So I will say one of the benefits of the pandemic has been I've gone digital and so I don't know how many pages are in the green book, uh, but I'll look it up online when I when I need to. Well, we'll give the answer in the close. Steve, any guess from you? I don't have any idea. I'm going to say, uh, you know, 465 pages. Oh, I see. I was going to go way more, like closer to like a thousand. So we'll find out and we'll give the answer. Fact check. The Green Book is definitely more in the neighborhood of a thousand pages. 
In the 2006 edition, it was 1,175 pages. So sorry, Steve, with a guess of 465 pages, we stumped you. All right, but let's get into our topic for today. Before though, one more question for you, Brett. I know there was some recent changes to the hedge accounting model. Does any of that fit into what we're talking about today? There was uh, an update that was generally effective in 2019 for public companies uh, with calendar year ends and in 2021 for most private companies. So um, there were some changes there, both in presentation on the balance sheet and income statement uh, and disclosure. But everything we talk about today is going to assume that the company has already adopted that guidance. All right, perfect. So then let's start with the balance sheet. Oh, it's a good place to start. So what do we need to focus on there, Brett? So I think there are two things to focus on. One is geography on the balance sheet and one is the amount. Uh, on geography, uh, this is sort of easy because uh, the accounting literature doesn't provide specific guidance on balance sheet classification for derivatives. For institutions that have a large portfolio of derivatives, often they're presented in a separate line item. They may show up in other assets for other types of companies. The amount on the balance sheet can get more complicated. Although, uh, as I said, uh, I think before, derivatives are always accounted for at fair value on the balance sheet. So that's a simple starting point. But there are two complexities to have in mind. One relates to collateral or margin. Many derivative arrangements require counterparties to post margin to eliminate the credit risk of the derivative receivables or, or payables. And that, that variation margin exchange may represent actual settlement of the receivable or payable, or it may constitute just collateral posted uh, with the counterparty. And the accounting for those two is different. So the first thing you need to do is to make a legal determination, you know, understand your counterparty and understand your agreement to know whether that variation margin that you posted is going to reduce the balance sheet amounts or not. The second thing to consider is offsetting. And the accounting literature will permit, uh, but doesn't require you to offset derivative amounts with a counterparty. So think of your derivative payables and your receivables that you may have under different contracts with the counterparty. Think of also the cash collateral that you may have posted that's accounted for as collateral with that counterparty that's all captured in a legal agreement called the master netting arrangement that permits you to settle all of that net. So the accounting requirements for offsetting generally still must be met. You've got to start out with two counterparties. You have to have the legal ability to net, but you don't have to have the intent to offset amounts in order to qualify for offsetting for derivative instruments, only the ability. Uh, so this is a, a complexity that you don't need to deal with uh, because it is an accounting policy election. Very typical for uh, derivative dealers and for financial institutions to make that accounting election. But other types of entities like corporates that don't have a lot of derivative activity may skip this complexity entirely. So, Brett, that's helpful. And I think it's a good background. Steve, maybe bringing you into the conversation, I know an area where you get a lot of questions is in cases where companies have a classified balance sheet. And in that circumstance, is there anything specific that they should be thinking about from a derivative perspective? As derivatives are carried on the balance sheet as fair value, as Brett mentioned. Uh, each reporting period, the fair value related to a cash flows occurring within one year are classified as current. The fair value related to cash flows occurring beyond one year would be classified as non-current. That seems uh, pretty simple, right, to break it that way. Why don't we dig a little deeper? 
Our goal here is not to overstate the current ratio. So let's see if we can think of any hidden current liabilities we might have. So just to chime in for our listeners' benefit, calculating the current ratio is very straightforward. And to do so, you simply divide company's current assets by its current liabilities. Also, one more thing to add. In terms of classification of derivative assets and liabilities, I think there's some nuances to the general principles that Steve mentioned, but I don't think we need to get into those today since the idea is really look at cash flows and make sure any current liabilities are shown as such. So Steve, with that, why don't you go on? I, I would overstate a current ratio if I don't include a current liability on the liability side, if I put that in long-term liability. So I'm, so I'm searching to make sure I'm getting those current liabilities. And since I'm, my concern, I mean, is not to overstate, if I've got a derivative that's an asset and I classified entirety as an asset, I'm really not hurting anything unless that asset has once again got a current liability buried someplace in it. So I I couldn't report that all as non-current. The entirety of that asset is non-current if it has a current liability in it. And this is because if you think about a derivative, you could have next year as a liability, then the following year it's in an asset position. And so the net maybe is an asset, but you're saying you might still have a current liability you have to pull out. Yeah, that's the idea. All right. I think that's helpful summary then. So then, Steve, how about from an income statement perspective? So first, there's some derivatives that aren't hedges, derivatives that are for trading or for speculation. So just a reminder that those are marked to fair value through income. And then, Steve, I think you're going to tell us next about the presentation of economic hedges or accounting hedges. So like for non-hedge derivatives, derivatives not designated in the hedging relationship are generally known as an economic hedge. Economic hedges, uh, uh, ASE 815 does not prescribe specific guidance on income statement geography or presentation for economic hedges. Reporting entities should make a policy election regarding income statement classification of derivatives that are economic hedges to either record the changes in the fair value in the same line item as the economic hedged item or in another reasonable income statement line item. That's a policy choice. They may not want the administrative burden of seeking hedge accounting. So what they have is effectively an economic hedge. So everything has to be to the same line item in every income statement for the life of that economic hedge. Then Brett, how about for derivatives that are in a hedging relationship, what are the things we should think about? Sure. And this can be a little bit more complicated with your economic hedges. Steve just talked about largely geography matches between the hedged item, the economic hedged item and the derivative. Uh, But hedge accounting is going to try to also align the timing in the income statement. So remember that changes in fair value of the derivative are recorded currently in income which can often create a mismatch between when that hedged item affects the income statement. And so the hedge accounting rules try to solve that that mismatch. And they do it in a couple different ways. Uh, For what we call fair value hedges, we get the timing aligned by actually marking the hedged item to fair value through the income statement as well. Um, That's going to create a basis adjustment that's going to be recorded against the hedged items uh, carrying value and then go through the income statement to offset the mark-to-market on the derivative instrument. Again, the hedge accounting requirements will require that that be presented in the same line item, which uh, most preparers would want anyway. For cash flow hedges and net investment hedges, we solve the mismatch the other way. We take the mark-to-market on the derivative, and rather than flowing it immediately through earnings, 
we flow it through other comprehensive income. And it stays there until the hedged item naturally impacts earnings uh, or the net investment is disposed of. And at that time, we pull the amount out of OCI and record it uh, in earnings at that at that time. There are some special complications in this when, when you get into the, some of the details of hedge relationships. So I'll give a shout out for excluded components. Uh, if, if there are hedge accounting nerds on, the, on listening to the podcast, they'll know to look at that separately. But for most corporates, um, that may not be a, a significant issue. And remember that, that the accounting update um, that we just talked about uh, does require that the change in value of the derivative in a hedge relationship go in the same line item uh, as the hedged item. That's true for cash flow hedges and for value hedges. All right. That's helpful. So then, Brett, if we s- sort of stick with you and talk about disclosures, I know it's a very long list, similar to I think the last podcast you were on, but what might be helpful just to start out is just talk about the 815 disclosure objectives. So can you give us that sort of overview before we get into some of the detail? Yeah. And, and this is an area where you're right. The, the list is going to be hard uh, to go through. So we, we point people to the to a good disclosure checklist uh, for the details. But think of the objectives in three primary buckets. Uh, the first is how and why a reporting entity uses derivatives. The second is how they're accounted for both the derivatives and the related hedged items. And then the third is to, to walk through how the derivatives and the hedged items affect the financial position, financial performance, and, and cash flows. So starting with that first objective, there's qualitative disclosures required around objectives and strategies to describe. This is where companies will describe what they choose to hedge, what they what they use derivatives for in general. They include some measure of the volume of a derivative activity. So is this a significant activity or is it really used in, in limited uh, situations? In that second category, uh, there's a number of accounting policy elections, some of which we've, we've already talked about. The accounting policy, whether to offset uh, or not to offset, uh, would be disclosed. Um, the policy on income statement presentation, you know, where they go on the income statement, where the, where they're shown on the balance sheet, uh, where they flow through the cash flows and different elections made in hedge accounting, like, uh, the excluded components, um, and how they're, how those are treated, for example. And then the third set of disclosures is intended to help the financial statement user kind of walk through all of these complications and match them up to the balance sheet and income statement. So there's a number of required tabular disclosures uh, that are designed to convey all this. So they walk through the netting and the collateral we talked about, starting with gross amounts and then displaying the amount of netting that's done that you can then tie that net amount back to what you see on the balance sheet. Describing in detail uh, the location and fair value of derivative, derivative instruments uh, in the balance sheet, you know, where are they? Um, and same thing with gains and losses on derivative instruments uh, and hedges on the income statement. You know, really going down into showing each line item on the income statement that's affected by hedge accounting uh, and results and, and where those will, where those will show up. And all of this is done. And I guess, Brett, sorry, before you go on, I think the key there is, as you talked about earlier, since there's no mandate for where these have to go, that's why it's important in the disclosure to tell your users where these amounts are on the face of the balance sheet and the income statement. That's exactly right. Um, The last thing I'll say is public companies should also look to SX for a few add-ons. 
um, there's some disclosures required uh, specifically for them uh, regarding some of the detailed methods used to account for derivatives um, in hedge accounting and some of the methods used to account for derivative terminations when they when they exist. All of this, I'll also uh, remind um, listeners to check out the fair value disclosures, because when we think of derivatives, we often think of fair value and there's a whole set of disclosures I know we've covered on on a different podcast. All right, Brett, that's helpful. And Brett, one quick thing. I think I jumped in right when you were going to give a good reminder about whether these disclosures should be gross or net. Yeah. So regardless of whether you're offsetting amounts on the on the balance sheet, on the face of the balance sheet, uh, all of these should be shown on a gross basis in the tabular disclosures, not netted out already. All right. Good reminder. Thank you. And then Steve, let's go to you. So hedge, if we take a step back and think about hedges, what are sort of, again, big picture, what you would think about maybe before you get into the details of the disclosures, if, if someone was coming to you and just asking, you know, how should they think about their, their hedge disclosures? Uh, sure, Heather. I, I think that there's a, uh... There's an easy way to think about that. Uh, for fair value hedges, you know, it's all about the basis adjustment, as Brett mentioned. So that's really, you know, kind of what matters there. And for cash flow hedges, it's all about OCI, where you're putting these offsets or where you're deferring these offsets until eventually they're recognized in the income statement. You're getting equal offsetting on fair value hedges, but you're creating this basis adjustment that's going to come out over time. So for fair value hedges, it's all about the basis adjustments. I have to disclose the carrying amount uh, of the of the hedged item that's in the hedge relationship. So that carrying amount is going to include those basis adjustments. And then separately, for active and discontinued hedges, I need to show the cumulative amount of fair value hedging adjustments to the hedged assets and liabilities that are included in the balance sheet. For those fair value hedges. So separately for the ones that are still alive and, and the ones, the basis adjustments that are now just part of the carrying value and will come out um, under a normal, not a hedge accounting model. I think not on a mark-to-market basis, but will be part of the basis basis and amortized out as that hedged item, you know, disc premium or discount is amortized into the income statement or the uh, hedged item occurs and, and that amount is monetized. So Steve, before you go to cash flow, I do think this terminology can get confusing for people who aren't dealing with this all the time, because you're talking about the hedged asset or liability and then the hedging instrument. So just quickly, can you recap what each of those are? So a hedged asset or liability, um, if we say, let's take a, let's take an interest rate hedge for a moment. I could have an available for sale debt security, for example, or some kind of a loan asset that I'm hedging, or I could have a, a, a loan liability or something like this that, that, that's, that's being hedged, anything like that for interest rate risk. And then the uh, hedging instrument is the derivative itself, right? So in a fair value hedge, I'm recording the derivative in the income statement at fair value, and I'm recording an adjustment to the carrying amount of the hedged item due to changes in the identified hedge risk, I'm putting that in the income statement and creating this quote-unquote basis adjustment that I'm adjusting the carrying value of my hedged item. So if I should stop hedge accounting, that discount or premium, that adjustment I put to to that hedged item is now going to have to follow other accounting, normally discounts or premiums on on debt instruments to be 
recognized over the in the income statement over the in you know over the life of the of the hedged item. All right, that's helpful. And like I said, listening those terms can all sort of merge together. So I think that's a good uh, clarification. And then how about if you're dealing with cash flow hedges? So as I pointed out, on cash flow hedges are really all about OCI and forecasts, right? So I'm, I'm I don't have a hedged item yet. Right. I don't, I don't have an existing asset or liability that I'm hedging. I'm hedging a forecasted transaction. So the derivative mark to market is being deferred in AOCI until whatever's going to happen happens in the future and happens when I forecast. So naturally the disclosures around this are, you know, kind of makes sense. Actually, you want a description of the transactions or events that will result in the reclassification of these deferred amounts that are sitting in OCI into the income statement. You also want and the amount of existing gains or losses that are reported in AOCI that will be expected to be reclassified into earnings within the next 12 months. And then the final thing is has to do with forecasts, the, the maximum length of time over which the entity is hedging the exposures to variability in future cash flows of forecasted transactions. So how far out am I forecasting? I need to tell people that so they have some kind of idea about you know what what my plans are and how this OCI, not just the 12 months of OCI, but the rest of the OCI is going to come out. All right. And then, Steve, for some of our listeners who may not deal with credit derivatives, can you give an example of what we mean when we say credit derivative? Uh, say, yeah, say, say a standard credit default swap. So um, you might, you as a purchaser of credit protection may want to, may hold a particular bond. And for some portion of time, you're concerned about the credit uh, risk of, of, of that entity. And so you may come to me and say, Steve, I want to purchase credit protection. And I'll say, okay, well, you need to pay me a premium. Uh, you pay a premium over time. And if there's some kind of credit event that, uh, that, particular bond uh, issuer doesn't make a payment or something like that, then I would need to step in and and either cover that or in the more simple derivatives, you may simply have a put right to, to make me buy that bond from you at par. I definitely think that's helpful. And then I know there are also specific disclosures companies should be considering for credit derivatives, but those actually primarily relate to the writer of the credit derivative which are generally financial institutions. So I don't think we need to get into those further today. Um, but if you're interested, please look in the derivatives and hedging chapter in our FSP guide. Then Steve, couple, well, one more question for you. We talked previously about economic hedges. So are there any special disclosures for economic hedges or do they just fall into what Brett already spoke about? Yeah, economic hedges just fall into what what Brett was was talking about. There's there like I said are no rules specific rules other than that the settlement payments and the mark to markets on those derivatives have to go to the same line item. That's really the only thing. All right, and I know from my own experience, companies often disclose if they have these types of arrangements. Just again, as part of their overall risk profile, and then maybe Brett, I'll go back to you with one more question in this area. We just ran through a lot of disclosures. And are these uh, disclosures that are only for the annual statements or do we see these in interim statements as well? No, they're, they're subject to interim reporting requirements as well. So um, often the interim statements will be shorter because it's an update to the annual statements. Um, 
but there's there, even in quarterly financial statements, there's there's a there's a lot of disclosure requirements uh, provided there too. Yeah, that's why I figured we better highlight it because I I do think this is an area where there's not that much savings time savings uh, for the quarters. All right. Then let's jump into a few other areas. So Steve, staying with or going back to you, if I'm a private company, is there anything um, specific that I should be thinking about? The presentation disclosure requirements are largely similar for for private companies to public companies. However, private companies um, that are not financial institutions um, may elect a hedge accounting alternative, something called the simplified hedge accounting approach for a certain type of hedge, right? A certain type of swap that economically converts variable rate borrowings into fixed rate borrowings. So the simplified accounting approach is only for that particular hedge strategy, but that is a very common hedge strategy, especially for private companies to turn turn floating rate debt rather than using fair value as determined under ASC 820. All right. Let me chime in here again. So let me just point out that this is an exception where private companies who have this hedge strategy that we just described report their derivative at settlement value rather than fair value. And therefore, they must disclose that fact. If they do it, they're not obligated to do that. But that's certainly another simplifying factor to to uh, determining the the value of the derivative that's reported in the in the financial statements. Now, that's not fair value, so I don't follow the rest of the fair value disclosures for for that for that item. It's a you know separate kind of value on its own. And if I should become a public company in the future, I'm going to have to uh, I'm going to have to uh, adjust to the fair value. Steve, uh, maybe another question for you. I know, again, you got a lot of derivative questions. Do you see many companies using this alternative or is it mixed practice? Um, there, there's mixed. There's certainly, it's, it be, it's certainly worth the time. There is one other big advantage to, this, to the simplified approach um, in that the timing and completion of any hedge documentation um, is relaxed and just needs to be done by the time the financial statements are issued. So, I mean, there was some relaxing in ASC 2017-12 related to the initial, for public entities, uh, initial effectiveness test has been relaxed, is, does not need to be contemporaneous. But for the for private companies, the effectiveness testing, the documentation, everything just needs to be done by the time the financial statements are issued. So that's another reason why uh, they do they do quite often choose this, even if they're going to use a fair value number in the in in their uh, simplified approach. Yeah, that's a huge benefit there. And then Brett, let me go back to you. Anything else out there that companies should be focused on? You know, sort of more broadly in this area. Yeah, something I think everyone should be aware of is uh, reference rate reform. So. Uh, a lot of derivative instruments are related to have have um, interest underlyings, um, and so they're impacted by reference rate of reform. And the SEC uh, staff, in particular, is interested in disclosures about how reference rate reform will impact different entities. And so, I think we've done a podcast before about um, bidding farewell to LIBOR. Um, it's a good reminder to to be looking at those disclosures. In addition, um, the, the FASB has issued guidance. It's in uh, Section uh, 848 of the codification related to uh, reference rate reform and how it impacts derivative accounting uh, or specifically hedge accounting 
uh, for, for derivatives. And there are special standards and disclosures dealing with hedge relationships that will be affected by, by reference rate reform. So I'd, I'd point readers to that. Uh, okay. And then in terms of advice for our listeners, Steve, I'm going to start with you. And again, I know you get lots of questions on derivatives, some on disclosures, some more broadly. So you can either pick disclosures or derivatives more broadly, but what advice do you give to people who are dealing in this area? I, I would say uh, communicate early and often. Yeah, it seems like the, you know, on an overall basis here, um, there, there's always a disconnect between the deal makers and the accountants. And uh, um, I, that's certainly when things go off the rails, it's usually because of, of miscommunications there around um, what initially the derivative was going to be. And then later on, what the uh, what, you know, was palatable from a from a market perspective uh, as far as what the derivative contract that actually was entered was anything like that. And I think uh, and then there's usually some arguments then around. Uh, uh, around how the effectiveness testing is going to be done, and then I get I get called and have to make, give a difficult a difficult answer there about uh, how 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 things are done there and things like that. And so I, those communications happen earlier than as as these market things change. It's it's much easier to get data from the your counterparty or your 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 dealer kind of thing like that, or 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 make a change that allows for a, a, an, an easier assumption as far as like effectiveness goes. And Heather, I agree with Steve, especially internally, it's it's really important to focus on a lot of details because little details can cause a problem uh, with hedge accounting in, in, in particular. Uh, when dealing and talking externally and with financial statement users, I often tell people you've, you've also got to make sure you've taken a step back. And the details we've talked about can be really confusing to financial statement users that aren't well-versed in all of these rules and details. So you've got to make sure that you've told the story about why you're using derivatives and what you're doing from a business purpose. And then, like we talked about earlier, tie in all those details to what's what's on your financial statements, both your balance sheet and your income statement. All right. That's great advice from both of you. And then final question. I know you've both seen a lot in the area of derivatives and just curious if you can think of something that's sort of the most unusual question you've gotten or the most unusual item that you've concluded is or is not a derivative, but where you at least were contemplating it. And Steve, I know I've brought you a few odd ones over the years, but uh, anything come to mind? I, I think a, a number of sunny days in Florida as a again underlying on a on a financial instrument was a, a, a kind of interesting one that I, I I had bumped into associated with a uh, some kind of a, a of a a hotelier or or somebody in the leisure business kind of thing like that that they were looking to potentially have in their in in a, in a debt arrangement. I thought that was uh, you know it kind of comes up. We've uh, that one's kind of stuck with me for for quite a while. Is that anytime we have a word to bring up, say, well, what about no number of sunny days in Florida? Kind of. Uh, <laughs> that's a great example. All right. So Steve, I think Steve, that's a great note for us to, to end on thinking about sunny days. So Brett and Steve both, thanks so much for all your insight. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Heather. Thank you, Heather. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. And special note to listeners, if you missed today's broadcast of our third quarter accounting webcast, there's two more dates available left to register, September 23rd and September 29th. To sign up and earn CPE credit, go to viewpoint.pwc.com. So that you never miss an episode, 
follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.